This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Gary Trauner, Democratic nominee for the United States Senate in Wyoming. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Really appreciate it. It's fun. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. So, Gary, this seat is considered pretty safe for your Republican incumbent, but I have a feeling you don't see it that way. Why is the conventional knowledge wrong? Well, if anyone knows my history, I'm not a professional politician. I'm a sort of community-oriented person and, and business person, frankly. And um, 12 years ago, I, I sort of realized that we were starting to get ourselves in deep trouble. And I had never run for anything more than school board, but um, I decided to run for U.S. House. Now, uh, Wyoming is the least populated state in the country, 570,000 people or so. So we only have one member of the U.S. House. It's a statewide race, just like a U.S. Senate race. Um, and in a very similar off year with a very similar mood in the country, um, I lost by less than half a percentage point to a six-term incumbent. Uh, and, and in fact, there were some debate as to who won and who actually lost with some voting issues. So um, we've seen some polling data here. Uh, we've got a super competitive race. Uh, people don't pay attention to Wyoming because it's Wyoming and there aren't a lot of people. But... We see the data. I've got a, I've got a demonstrated history of being able to pull people from all sides of the aisle, and uh, we know we can get it done. And could you tell me a little bit more about this race? Why are you challenging the incumbent? What makes you better? I think the incumbent has a reputation for, frankly, uh, if you know John Barrasso, he's number, I believe, number five in Senate leadership on the Republican side, um, but a very low key party line. Uh, ambitious, power-hungry kind of person. Um, if you see pictures of Mitch McConnell in the Capitol Rotunda doing press conferences, you'll always see uh, John Barrasso standing back over his right shoulder. You might not recognize him because he doesn't have the same profile as some of the other senators do. Um, but he's doing nothing to help the people in Wyoming. Absolutely zero. You know, I'm not taking any corporate money. I was endorsed by N Citizens United super early on. Um, you know, he's a corporate... You know, he's the face of corporate America. Um, I asked some simple questions that I'll tell you why I'm running. Who in Wyoming wants seniors to pay more for their drugs on Medicare because Congress passed a law that won't allow that? Um, I don't think there's one single person in the state of Wyoming or probably this country, except for John Barrasso and his colleagues, because they're bought and paid for by Big Pharma. And who in Wyoming wants uh, hedge fund managers on Wall Street to pay lower tax rates than Wyoming teachers, miners, and ranchers? Again, I'd make the argument literally not one single person in the state wants that, except for John Barrasso and his colleagues because they're bought and paid for by Wall Street. So he's not representing regular people. We've got an economy that doesn't work for everybody. He's been there for 10 years. We know he's not changing the darn thing in D.C., and it's time for something different. So clearly healthcare is a major issue for you. What are the other big issues affecting the people of your state? Uh, that's a good question. So... Um, you know, the sort of the, the tagline I would put for my race, and remember that Wyoming is, by registration numbers, Wyoming's a pretty red state, um, and that's just the reality of where we live. 
And it's a different culture from Connecticut or New York or California or, or other places on the coast. And sometimes it's hard for people to understand that. We, I've, I'm from New York State originally, but I've, I've been here for about 30 years. So we're pretty steeped in, in Wyoming. Um, so my, my view is it's country before party and families in the forefront. Uh, so I'm focused really heavily on working with anyone that I can to promote issues that affect individuals and families in their everyday lives. So clearly healthcare is a number one. It's the thing I hear about the most on the trail. Um, but education is a huge factor in student loan debt. Um, and, and actually in our state, uh, community college and vocational training. Um, again, you know, an economy that works for everybody. So uh, we're a boom bust state. We're an energy state. Uh, we're coming out of a bust. Uh, a lot of people have left our state. A lot of people struggling. Um, and we get told that we have an economy that's growing at 4% of GDP, but I, it's my guy walks into a bar story where, you know, a Wall Street CEO walks into a bar, 30, nine of his employees who own $30,000 a year are, are there commiserating. He earns $10 million a year. Instantly, the average income in that bar goes from $30,000 a year to over a million dollars a year, but only one person's making it the boss. That's our economy today. Um, and that's what I'm focused on with regular people. So we've also got some other issues, public lands access. Uh, 50%, almost 50% of our state is public lands. Uh, and so balancing energy production with wilderness, protecting our public lands, uh, protecting our game herds, our wild game herds for recreation, big issue out here in Wyoming. So in terms of healthcare, what system do you support? So Jordan, I'm a former COO of a hospital out here. So I've got a bunch of years of experience within the system. And I think there's something we need to recognize. That is, we don't only have we don't really have a system in this country. Um, we have many. So we've got socialized medicine, if that's what you want to call it. That's the Veterans Administration, where the hospitals and doctors are owned and employed by the government. We've got Canadian-style single-payer, that's Medicare. We've got French and German-style uh, nonprofits, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield system. And then we've got something that no other countries really have, which is a for-profit insurance system. My view is um, I'm relatively agnostic. I just want to get to a point where every single person in this country is covered with basic quality, affordable health care. Um, we can no longer have a GoFundMe system of health care when people get sick or injured or a loved one is in trouble with health care. Um, even with insurance companies, people have to put up a GoFundMe page to try and get charity. That, that's not the way to do it. So uh, Medicare for all would be great. Absolutely. Medicare is, is uh, you know, it's got incredibly low overhead, 2%, 3% overhead. Uh, it's a system that most people are happy with. Um, but you know what? If we wanted to go to a system where we had nonprofits like the Blues, where everybody had insurance and, and they were the ones to go with it, I'm for whatever it takes to get people to where everybody is covered in this system. Um, and we're not there right now. And the system is broken, having worked within it. Uh, and it probably needs a little bit of a shock to the system to make the change that we need. And what about education? Yeah, um, you know, education equals opportunity. And I go back to Thomas Jefferson and uh, James Madison. You know, they, they weren't good buddies back in the day. But uh, the one thing they all agreed on was that public education was critical um, to maintaining our democracy and, and having a, a strong economy. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is Thomas Jefferson, the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. Um, but here in Wyoming, again, it's not just, we only have one four-year land-grant university, University of Wyoming. There's no other four-year schools in Wyoming. We have seven or eight community colleges with their satellite campuses. Um, and we have a lot of, you know, we have some vocational schools. And there's a lot of good jobs out here for people in industrial manufacturing and in the energy patch. 
um, and the mining patch uh, where you just need a certificate and some uh, some skills training and not necessarily a four-year degree. So Perkins grants, Pell grants, we need to find a way to make sure that uh, we've got anyone who wants the opportunity to get a higher education at a land-grant university or at community college or vocational schools can do it without racking up 30 or 40 or 50 or $100,000 of student loan debt um, that's being paid at high interest rates in the private sector uh, that you can't discharge in bankruptcy unlike other corporations can do when they declare bankruptcy. Um, we just need to have the will and the political will to, to put our money where our mouth is. It's that simple. Public education is key. I'm the former chair of the school board in my county as well. So um, I'm a public education guy through and through. And finally, just one last thing, pre-K. So Head Start uh, nutritional programs, uh, studies clearly show that kids that start school, start K-12 uh, with a Head Start and with proper nutrition perform better over their lifetimes. So it's a whole spectrum of making sure that we put our money where our mouth is. So we are recording on Wednesday, October 3rd. In two days, the Senate will be voting on the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Unsurprisingly, your incumbent supports Kavanaugh and does not believe any of the four women who have come forward with the information that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted them. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is something that uh, is is fraught on so many different levels. Um, it's hard to even know where to start, but I will start by saying that, um, you know, I do talk about country before party. I'm proud of my party. I, I don't shy away from it, but I'm not running because I'm a Democrat. I'm actually running because my kids made me do this because they're scared and worried about their future. And I'm going to try to do the right thing for everyone in my state and in my country, regardless of, of their party. And I think that's part of the problem we've got in our system today is uh, this, you know, George Washington in 1796, his biggest concern is farewell speech was that people would put party before country and it would corrupt our system. And, and we're there. Um, but when it comes to Kavanaugh, I asked people in my state, um, how do they felt about how our Senator voted on Merrick Garland? Uh, and that's obviously a trick question because Merrick Garland uh, never got a vote for 10 months. Uh, the Senate didn't do its constitutional duty to advise and consent. Um, and my point is, if what do you expect people to do when uh, one party nominates a Supreme Court justice who doesn't get a vote? And now there's a nomination for another Supreme Court justice who's trying to be rammed through in a super short period of time. Um, you know, that's not the way that our government should work. Now, when it comes specifically to Brett Kavanaugh, Look, the only way to figure this out is to do a proper investigation and a full investigation and talk to all the people involved um, and do the best we can to figure out what happened 30 some odd years ago. Um, it's pretty clear to me that Dr. Ford and uh, some of the other folks that are speaking up, the other women are, are credible. Um, obviously, I don't have any idea whether, in fact, uh, what happened, actually. Um, but their credibility, I think, is strong. And um, we need to get to the bottom of this. So. I think if it's just a thing where we're going to ramp, I just read today that the Senate Judiciary Committee wants to keep the FBI findings secret. Um, look, this is a lifetime appointment. This might be the most important thing that senators do is to advise and consent on lifetime appointments to the court system and not having transparency, keeping information secret, withholding documents from uh, Judge Kavanaugh's prior career um, and prior work in the Bush administration is flat out wrong um, and it's not going to end well. Now, when it comes to Judge Kavanaugh's uh, views, there's some pretty serious concerns I have. And two of the biggest ones are his uh, suddenly expansive view of executive power, uh, which wasn't so expansive when he was working on the Starr Report uh, with Ken Starr during the Clinton presidency. 
But now it seems expansive enough that he believes that um, pretty much a president shouldn't be held accountable. And of course, anytime that we think anyone's above the law, you, you, you move away from a, a democracy and a presidency into a sort of dictatorship situation. So uh, I disagree with that. And then the second place where I really have my strongest disagreement, I think, is uh, his rulings and his views on uh, corporations versus people. In every single case, almost every single case he's ruled on, on the circuit courts where he is, um, he has ruled in favor of large corporations against regular people. And I just, for the life of me in this country, can't understand how we've gotten to the point where uh, marginal increased profitability for corporations has become more important than protecting the health and well-being and welfare of regular people. Uh, so, um, you know, I can't know. I don't know what the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to do. I hope some of the Republicans up there have the guts to uh, to do what they think is the right thing instead of the political thing. Um, you know, look, there are other conservative candidates out there that probably uh, could be nominated who would be a lot less controversial. And um, for a lifetime appointment, I think it's pretty clear that we need to look elsewhere. So this is obviously the most well-publicized judicial nomination of the Trump era, but it's not the only one that's been cause for concern. Top nonpartisan civil rights and legal organizations have spoken out against multiple other Trump nominees for the federal judiciary, yet Democrats and Republicans alike have voted to confirm many of them. First, are you familiar with some of the nominees that Trump has confirmed outside of the Supreme Court? And would you see yourself supporting them? Uh, I, I am familiar, not with all of them, but with, with a fair amount of them. And um, look, this is, this is a difficult situation, right? Um, when you're a U.S. senator, uh, democracy is really hard, Jordan, right? Half the time you're being governed by people that you disagree with, uh, sometimes very strongly. Um, and in a democracy, you have to figure out a way to change that. And of course, that comes through voting. Um, and that's why this election is so critical in terms of control of the Senate. Uh, but look, my view is, again, presidents should be entitled to nominate folks that fit their philosophy, but who fall within what I would think my view is of uh, the, the mainstream of legal thought in this country. Um, and I think some of those nominees clearly don't fall within the mainstream of that legal thought for me. And if that's the case, whether it's on civil rights or LGBTQ issues, um, or women's issues, or executive power, or as I said, corporate power, um, I would exercise my due diligence as to advise and consent with all the information I can gather and, and make what I think would be the right choice. And, and I'm not afraid to vote no. But I also think that, you know, there may be times where I disagree but uh, with someone who's qualified, but if their views are within the mainstream, um, that's part of being a senator and part of our, our system. So uh, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think some of the judges that have been um, uh, um, nominated and then approved and passed should not have been. Um, but, you know, it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think they have to fall within the mainstream of thinking. And uh, there's a lot of folks out there that are being nominated that are pretty extreme. And what about Trump's cabinet nominees? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, look, I think what's pretty clear, and I say this all the time, is for the life of me, again, I can't understand why we would put people in positions of power running uh, departments or running an organization, the U.S. government, when they don't believe in the mission of the government and frankly don't want it to succeed. Uh, that to me, I mean, if we did that in any institution or business or organization, if the CEO 
didn't believe in the mission of the company and wanted it to fail, uh, what would happen? You know, it would probably fail and people would lose their jobs. So um, to me, the fact that Betsy DeVos doesn't really believe in public education or Scott Pruitt didn't really believe in, in protecting clean air and clean water um, or Wilbur Ross, you know, believes in commerce for crony politics instead of um, building an economy for everybody. Uh, you know, they're the wrong people in the wrong place. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, and I think we need to be clear about that. And, you know, what really concerns me is that Senator Barrasso, who was the head of the Environment and Public Works Committee, I'll use Scott Pruitt as an example, um, regardless of Scott Pruitt's policy decisions, uh, you know, what happens when you get put in, in a position of power uh, where you don't believe in the mission of the organization that you're running uh, is it becomes just a piggy bank for your own personal gain and for the personal gain of people around you. And it's pretty clear that Scott Pruitt was just your average penny anti-grifter, basically, um, using his power at the Environmental Protection Agency to enrich himself and his buddies. Uh, and the fact that John Barrasso was unwilling to do the oversight duty that is one of the duties of the Senate to do um, because he believed in the ends justifying the means uh, is just flat out wrong. It's dangerous to our system of government. It's dangerous to protecting, in the case of the EPA, its mission of clean, clean air and clean water. Um, so, yeah, there's some people there that I would not agree with and that I think probably should not be doing their jobs now. So you're clearly very concerned with the influence of corporate money in our political system. As you mentioned before, you have the endorsement of N Citizens United. What could you do in the Senate to actually divorce money from our politics and ensure that the people are the ones controlling what's happening in government? Jordan, that is the, I hate to use a bad pun, but that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? You know, first of all, again, I will never take corporate money. So um, from my personal perspective and when I hopefully am in office, uh, voters and citizens in Wyoming and people around the country will know that my views will be guided by what I think is right for regular people instead of what's right for large corporations. And by the way, I, I do want to make a point. Um, I'm a business guy. I, I'm an entrepreneur. I started a bunch of companies. I was a CEO of a hospital. Um, I've been, you know, my wife owns a small business. We've been involved in the private sector our entire lives. I am not anti-private sector. I am not anti-wealth um, accumulation, uh, but I think inequality is one of the issues of our time, number one. And I think that corporations uh, are artificially legislated entities that have two goals. Goal number one is to sell their product and service, and goal number two is essentially to be profitable. Um, that's fine as far as our system goes, but those companies with that narrow focus should not be determining our public policy on issues across the spectrum from healthcare to the environment to uh, individual civil rights, you name it. Um, so what can you do? Look, it's all about people, right? There's no magic formula. You need to go find people that have similar views or you have to go find people that may not have similar views, but who you're willing to develop relationships with and do the hard work that it takes uh, over time to um, work with people to make change. I mean, it's really that simple. You know, I like to tell a story. When I ran for the House 12 years ago, I was up in Washington, D.C., and I wanted to call my wife, and I had a couple of downtown moments, and I was at uh, Democratic Party headquarters, and I was with Mark Udall, who then was a congressman, a House member from Colorado, and I asked him where I could uh, make a phone call, and he kind of hesitated, and he pointed behind a door down the hall, and I went in that room, and of course, it's a call center where members of Congress are dialing for dollars spending a fair amount of their time with uh, assigned call time doing that. 
And when I, called, you know, I was kind of stunned. I hadn't seen that before. When I got out of the room after talking to my wife, the uh, representative Udall looked at me and said, you know, Gary, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't see that room because I thought it might change your mind about running. And it dawned on me that I don't think anybody up there likes the system. They hate it. The constant need to raise money from all sorts of different people and, and enterprises. Um, but for the folks that have gotten there, it's worked for them. And so they don't really have the, the cojones, frankly, to, to try and change it. And I think it takes someone coming in from the outside who doesn't care how long they stay in Washington, D.C., who wants to do the right thing, who've got leadership ability and integrity. And I think those are the two key character traits you need to look for in elected officials these days. Who's willing to take the lead um, and risk political career um, in order to make change? And that change, again, is only done when you can get other people on board uh, to your point of view and find ways to communicate and compromise and um, lead people to the to the promised land, so to speak, where uh, regular folks have a voice instead of large corporations. I wish I had a better answer. I really do, Jordan. I wish there was a magic bullet. Um, that we could, that we could, or a magic button we could push. Uh, it's hard work. It's not easy. You need people that are focused on it and that are willing to lead and willing to put themselves at risk in order to do that politically. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Net neutrality is one of your top issues. As I'm sure you know, California just became the first state in the country to pass a net neutrality bill. Do you believe that internet access should be a right rather than a privilege? Uh, I, I, I guess I don't know that I would say right versus privilege. I don't know if those are the words that I would use. Again, as one of the as an entrepreneur, one of the companies that I started, uh, co-founded, and was the chief financial officer of and on the board of was an internet service provider. Back in the dinosaur days of dial-up and DSL and moving towards higher speed wireless, et cetera. So, um, you know, I've got experience in the industry. And, you know, I use Wyoming as a classic example. Uh, for people that are familiar or maybe not familiar with Wyoming, there's a saying about Wyoming, uh, it's a really small town with really long streets. We're a really big state geographically, and we've got a bunch of small communities that are very spread out. We are what I would call geographically challenged from that perspective. Um, and we're never going to have sort of, you know, Intel's never going to come into Buffalo, Wyoming to build a microchip, a chip plant because we don't have the, the infrastructure, we don't have the working base, et cetera. 
But people in Buffalo, a small town in relatively north central Wyoming, um, if they've got access to broadband uh, internet and they've got equal access to that internet along with large corporations, um, they have the ability to do a myriad of things in their small community to build businesses, build consulting uh, companies, do, do almost anything that you can imagine um, with that type of internet access. So I am absolutely a fan of net neutrality. I am absolutely a fan of ensuring that we have ubiquitous broadband access everywhere in this country. Absolutely. Um, and that might be redundant, ubiquitous and everywhere. But, uh, you know, again, the language of right versus verse, uh, not right, I don't know if that's the right wording, but yes, it's something that I would pursue. I think it's something that makes a difference for a lot of people. Um, and I don't think that companies that run the pipes of the internet uh, at this point has become such a commodity and such an important part of who we are, just like telephone service. Um, I don't think they should have the capability of deciding who gets slower speed, who gets faster speed, who has to pay way more, who doesn't, uh, based on their their view of, of who's competitive and what who they want to favor and who they don't want to favor. So absolutely, we need to have broadband throughout this country. Um, you know, the other issue is pretty simple, again, using Wyoming. You know, AT&T and Verizon are never going to come into probably Torrington, Wyoming, or Lusk, Wyoming, or I could go through a whole bunch of towns you've never heard of. Um, and build out infrastructure there in the way that it needs to be built out because the truth is the return on investment just there aren't, isn't there. There aren't enough people for them to recoup their investments. So that's where government's role, you know, governments do the things collectively that we can't do individually. And that's what a classic place for me where government should step in and mandate that everybody has access to broadband. So I think really the issue of our time right now is immigration. It speaks to our national character whether we want to be a multiracial democracy or not. I'm sure you've seen the new DHS report that came out detailing some truly horrific conditions in the migrant detention centers, which is a nice way of talking about putting kids in cages. The report showed that kids are being kept in cages for days. Asylum seekers are turned away. And perhaps most disturbingly, there are nooses in the cells of detained migrants. Um, sorry, it's, it's hard to find words for this. Um, of course, I already know that you do not support any of this, but my, my question is what would you actually do in the Senate to hold this abuse accountable to ensure that this can never happen again? Yeah, it, it's, it gets emotional, doesn't it, Jordan? It's really, it's unbelievable. Um, and it's not who we should be as America. So let's, we are, a, a, you know, a multiracial and a multi-ethnic democracy now. I mean, that's who we are. So we need to remember that from the get-go. Um, you know, just last week, so I don't know if you're familiar, Jordan, with, uh, uh, you know, the Japanese Americans that were interned during World War II um, upon the West Coast. Uh, and uh, just last week, I was in a place called Heart Mountain, Wyoming, which is between the towns of Cody and Powell. And it was one of the main detention camps, frankly, a concentration camp in, in essence, uh, where uh, I believe at the, its peak, it, it housed 14,000 uh, Japanese Americans. And actually, let's say Japanese nationals, two thirds of whom were actually American citizens. Um, and they've created a museum and an interpretive center there. and. 
um, you go there and it's just, it is so powerful and, um, you know, so sickening actually to me uh, that we are in a place where a, a mere 70 years later, we seem to have forgotten the lessons of something like that and how wrong that truly was. Uh, and so what do you do, right? Well, I think Senate has the job of oversight of the executive branch. And so you take an active role in overseeing uh, what's taking place in the executive branch. The Senate has the power and the Congress has the power to legislate. You pass legislation uh, that ensures that things like this can never be happening and that people in power will be held accountable for doing these kind of things. So, you know, I, I use an example um, about, you know, these days we hear about ICE going into, uh, you know, a meatpacking plant in Tennessee and arresting 100 undocumented workers or whatever the, the number may be. Um, you know, let's, let's put that aside for a second. Uh, you know who ICE really needs to be arresting? They need to be arresting the CEO of that company or the plant manager of that company because they're the ones who are responsible for, in theory, breaking whatever laws we have now that says that those undocumented workers shouldn't be there. Now, I believe we should have guest worker programs and other things where um, workers you know, and immigrants can come in and help our economy and become Americans to be productive. But where we are right now, it's like, let's hold the people in power accountable and you will get changed behavior very, very quickly. But we don't do that. And part of the reason we don't do that is because business wants cheap labor, uh, essentially slave labor. You know, we learned a long time ago in America that um, we will work hard, but we won't do it for slave wages without benefits, without safety in the workplace, without a voice in the workplace. That's just not who we are. We've passed a lot of laws to make sure that's not the case. Um, and I always argue that, you know what, you can find people, you can find Americans to pick lettuce in the fields, Central Valley of California, uh, if you paid them a hundred or $150,000 a year. Now I know that sounds crazy, but all that, I'm just making the point that there is a number out there where it will be worth it for people to step up and, and take those jobs. But if you want to pay people minimal, get, you know, minimal money with no benefits, with extended hours, no overtime, backbreaking work, no safety, uh, yeah, you're not going to get Americans. You're going to have to import that labor. And, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't import labor for our economy. And then they'll tell those people we don't want them here. So from a Senate perspective, it's oversight, it's legislation, and it's holding the powers that be accountable uh, to make sure that some of these atrocities and horrific treatment never happens again, because it's not who America is. I don't think it's who we want to be. Um, we need to change that big time. I really appreciate that you recognize this as a labor issue because our country's immigration system has really always been about having a deportable, cheap labor force next to slave labor, if not outright slave labor. And this is a, a, a very racialized issue going back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I bring that up because the Chinese Exclusion Act, as I'm sure you know, is what criminalized undocumented status and what put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution, I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting case of 1892, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. This quote is in regards to the constitutionality of deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property, it needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. 
Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel, end quote. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? Well, you know, I think the Chinese Exclusion Act is actually a better example, even than the Japanese-American Nisei and, and, and how we, you know, treat immigrants and uh, some of the mistakes that we've made in the past. Um, look, it's a really complex issue, Jordan. Uh, every country in the world, I think, should have the ability to determine what status people have within their borders and who, who they want to have in their country and who they don't want to have in their country. I mean, I think that is a fundamental part of sovereignty and, and who nations are. So, um, you know, the country should have the discussion about how we ensure um, that folks that come here have the status that we want them to have. You know, part of it is fixing the root cause back in the countries where they're coming from, right? Um, if they're coming from Central America or Mexico or wherever, um, you know, the less the less issues they have there from an economic perspective, from a governance perspective, and from a persecution perspective, uh, you know, the more likely people are not going to want to come from their home country to the United States. And, you know, let's be clear. I would, I would argue most people have to be pretty darn desperate, you know, either because they're being persecuted or fear for their lives or because uh, they just can't make it work uh, economically and they're looking for, for a better life. Um, to leave their country, to leave their culture, to leave their family, extended family, to leave their neighbors, to leave their language, to leave everything they know, uh, to come make an arduous journey to come to the United States. So, um, you know, when it, when it talks about deportation and some of the ways we do it, again, I think we need to put together a system of, of laws that makes sense for the type of immigration system that we want to have. And I think that um, you know, we simply, you know, we have an artificially low level of the number of immigrants that we allow to come to this country legally. End of story. Um, so I think that we need to raise that level uh, and we need to give the people that come here some voice, some reason to be vested in this country. And uh, if they want to stay, we give them a path to helping them stay and have status um, that gives them a vested interest in in wanting to do well by themselves and wanting to do well by the United States of America. We're not doing that right now. Um, so, you know, I'm not a jurist. I can't, you know, specifically speak to matters of law that the justice spoke to that you read about, but I think philosophically we're on the same page. Um, and there's a balance between, uh, you know, the security of knowing who's within your country and has what status and ensuring that people are treated humanely, number one. Um, that's always, you know, that, that's a no-brainer in our country. Uh, but also, number two, we give them the opportunity, if they're going to come here to work, uh, to have a meaningful place in the culture and the society of the United States of America. You kind of actually beat me to my next question, which is about the intersection of immigration and foreign policy. There's a certain irony in how the U.S. is rejecting many of the migrants and asylum seekers trying to find refuge here because it is the U.S. that destabilized so many of these countries in the first place. And that's going on to this day. Recently, Donald Trump floated the idea of regime change in Venezuela, which I find very concerning. What is your foreign policy perspective, especially in regards to the history of our country meddling in democratic elections? Uh, we don't have a good track on that track record on that, do we, Jordan? Um, you know, from from Chile to Iran uh, to Central America, um, you know, I think the law of unintended consequences has not worked in our favor 
when we've tried to destabilize regimes and, and create regime change. Now, look, there are bad people out there and uh, there are people that are not doing their uh, countrymen and, uh, um, you know, the folks that they're ruling over any good in what they do. And I think, you know, um, Venezuela is a classic example of that, quite frankly. Uh, but, you know, I think invading Venezuela and creating regime changes probably not the way to go. Uh, these are really, again, difficult, complex issues, because if you give foreign aid to Nicolas Maduro, um, I'm guessing that he's not going to use it to help the people of his country. He's probably going to use it to enrich himself and uh, his cronies and, and to help himself stay in power. So uh, these are really, really tough questions. Uh, but I'm generally not a fan of regime change and creating instability uh, where where um, you don't really have a plan moving forward. Look, we didn't have a plan in Iraq. In Iraq. Uh, we didn't have a plan in Libya. We don't really have a plan in Syria. Um, and I think we can see the results of that. It's pretty ugly. Now, the world's, the world's a messy place. And things aren't always so neatly done. As, as I said, there are people that are good, not good people and where you have to make difficult choices. But, um, you know, inserting ourselves uh, into the foreign affairs of countries like that um, in a forceful way, military way, to me, doesn't really make sense. We need to defend our country for sure. Um, if we can find ways to help them improve their governance, improve their economy um, and give people more rights, uh, that's the way I would go. But it's it's not easy. Again, I, there's no... I wish I had the, if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be doing more than just running for U.S. Senator. I'd, I'd be in some exalted position because everybody else would want to know how to fix it, too. And what are your thoughts on the recent military budget? Yeah, look, we, you know, we need to be as efficient as possible. We need to make sure we have a strong defense. There are bad people out in the world. We need to make sure that um, we are safe and that we work with our allies to reduce the risk of war and um, to stop uh, when bad actors do bad things around the globe. But, you know, do we need bases in, what, 150 or 160 or more countries? Um, I think that's certainly something we could take a look at. I think we're always trying to fight the last war. Um, and so, you know, you need to continually be reassessing, uh, you know, how many aircraft carriers do you need? What's the appropriate number? Um, uh, you know, I, I think the Pentagon can do a lot in terms of being more efficient and more effective in the way it spends money. You know, the F-35 Raptor is a classic example, isn't it, right? I mean, none of the, none of the services wanted it. Um, and yet, here we are. We've got it. And it's sort of it's this hybrid uh, jet fighter aircraft that uh, doesn't do anything really well and does a lot of stuff average. And I think none of the services are happy with it. But uh, politically, the corporations that were going to build it, you know, spread the work around in a lot of different congressional districts. They work the system um, and donated a lot of money. And poof, we're spending a lot of money on something that probably isn't something our, our military experts wanted. So, um, you know, people talk about balancing the budget. Uh, I think people really, I think a lot of people don't really get how screwed we are right now. Um, you know, we could cut the entire, outside of military spending and outside of uh, interest on the debt, which is obviously mandatory, and outside of Social Security and Medicare, our safety net programs, which have their own separate tax system through payroll taxes, and in fact, haven't really contributed to our deficit and debt over the years very much, if at all. Um, 
we can cut the entire discretionary budget of the United States of America. Uh, everything from law enforcement, CIA, FBI, Border Patrol, court system, to education, to infrastructure, um, you know, commerce, you name it. We could cut the entire discretionary budget, CDC, National Institute of Health, NEA, uh, I mean, uh, um, uh, you know, National Endowment for the Arts, right, the NEA, and we still wouldn't balance the budget right now, right? That's, that's how bad we are right now. So we need to find places to save, and no place should be uh, exempt from that. Um, and certainly we need to make sure that we're strong and that we protect ourselves. You know, it is, again, it's a messy world, but uh, I think the military can contribute some to that as well. So you mentioned private military contractors. What are your thoughts on the government working with and giving so much money to these contractors, especially given the fact that the people voting to give money to these contractors are the same people who the contractors donate to the re-election campaigns of? Yeah, my thoughts on on that is they're not good thoughts. <laughs> um, you know, I guess the whole idea behind military contractors was in theory to save money. It turns out, of course, you don't save money at all. You spend more money. Um, and what you end up with is an unaccountable sort of extra branch of the military um, that doesn't play by the same rules, doesn't answer to the same folks, and frankly, doesn't really have the expertise that it needs steeped in, in you know, our rules and regulations and military doctrine, et cetera, to do what it does out there in the world. And it really hasn't served us very well in any way, shape, or form. And yeah, of course, you know, Halliburton and, and uh, um, companies like that have uh, made a living on, um, you know, uh, lobbying the government for huge contracts. I mean, look, Vice President Cheney had never worked basically in the private sector in his entire life, right? He had always been in government. And somehow, he became the CEO of Halliburton. Um, and, uh, you know, that was all about crony, crony capitalism. Um, and it certainly didn't do our military any good. So I'm against using contractors. I think that there's a role for government defense and everything associated with it is a governmental role. Um, we should keep it that way. Uh, when you get, you know, Eric Prince and people like him out there uh, doing things on their own, thinking that they're, uh, they're better than the government and they're smarter than the government and our policies. That's a recipe for big time disaster. What do you think about the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi Arabia and providing foreign aid given the humanitarian crises in Yemen? Yeah, another difficult issue. Um, I wish the world was a cleaner place. Um, you know, there's a reason we're doing what we're doing in Saudi Arabia. It's pretty simple. It's because they have oil. Right. I mean, let's let's be clear about that. We're, we're not doing the same thing in Zimbabwe, uh, where they've had a tough time over the years and other places like Sudan, um, where there's been you know atrocities and, and bad governance because those places don't have uh, the energy products that that we think we need. So, you know, this is bigger than just sort of looking at Saudi Arabia as a geostrategic political partner. It's looking at how do, you know, one way to reduce defense, defense spending, by the way, is if you're not reliant on uh, um, energy sources from the Middle East, then you probably don't have to have as much presence in the Middle East to defend those energy sources. Um, so, 
Look, I think we Saudi Arabia is is in some ways loosening up what it's doing, but they're they're prosecuting a horrific uh, war in Yemen. We're helping them with drone strikes um, and other other help, and I don't think that's something that the United States is really helping the United States in any way, shape, or form. Look, that situation over there is really again really complex. You know, all these things, Jordan, are really complex, right? There's no simple answer. If there was, they'd be done already. Um, the Shia-Sunni split has been going on for millennia. And, um, you know, sometimes we're backing people in Yemen and Syria that are a Sunni that also backed al-Qaeda and some of the folks that are coming against us in other ways. And I think we don't even understand some of the um, the, the geopolitical intrigue that's going on and, and the relationships and, and things of that nature. And yet, we, and we don't have an exit plan in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but we're just going ahead because we want to help a rival who we feel like we need to protect because they've got a commodity that we think we need in order to power everything that we do. So um, it's bigger than just Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, you want to have influence over countries like that to help them modernize, to help them figure out the right thing to do. But I think going along with their geostrategic goals and their region, regional goals don't always line up with the goals that we have as a country in terms of our national defense and our geopolitical strategies. So, um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing what we're doing in Yemen. Another one, very complicated, uh, is Israel and Palestine. I'm curious as to whether you would agree with the UN's assessment of the situation there versus the Trump administration's rejection of the near unanimous except for the U.S. assessment of what's going on. Yeah, you need a two-state solution, right? I mean, as long as uh, any people are... Look, <laughs> um, I've been to Israel. I've been to Jordan. Um, Israelis have been under, under, you know, existential threat since their country was founded in 1948. Um, I think it's hard for any of us to recognize what that really means when you're surrounded by 80 million people who have had a stated goal of driving you into the Mediterranean Sea since the inception of their country. Um, in some ways, through no fault of their own due to the British partition and the politics that took place prior to partition. Um, by the same token, the only way you're going to end up with a long-lasting permanent peace, in my view, is to afford both sides on this issue dignity and respect and the ability to sort of grow an economy and, and live the lives that they want to live. I would, I would make an argument, I would submit an argument that, you know, 90% of the people on both sides in this debate really just want to live good lives. Um, and so, you know, I think the perpetuation of building more settlements in the West Bank is counterproductive. Um, hard decisions are going to have to be made. I think the U.S. needs to be a really, really objective observer in this and if they're going to have the credibility to help peace happen it's challenging you've got hamas digging tunnels under from gaza under the west uh, into israel um to do harm to israelis and firing missiles you've got israelis um you know building settlements that are uh you know provocative to palestinians um it's it's not an easy situation but you need, a, you need an objective third party that has the ability to bring the people to the table together and has the credibility um, to help them make some really hard decisions between themselves. And I think 
those decisions in some ways do have to come from, you know, the sources themselves, the Palestinians and the Israelis. So lots there I'd like to follow up on. But for the sake of time, we are going to wrap up. So I thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I really appreciate it. I, I hope you see that I try to give pretty soon answers um, to all your questions. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Uh, you know, again, most of these issues are really, really complex. And I think that's part of the problem in our politics is we tend to simplify. And, you know, I make a point that politicians are maybe dumb, but they're not stupid. They know how to manipulate people. They know how to simplify things. It's really tough stuff. Yes, and, and we hope we get to continue this honest conversation with you after you hopefully are a United States senator. Thanks, George. I really appreciate it. appreciate the time and always happy to come on back. Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. And to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.